millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Richard. Uh, I'm a Manchester City fan. I'm on the Blue Moon podcast, which is a weekly specialist Manchester City podcast, and I write two articles a week for Yahoo Sport UK about City. Hello, my name is Geta Thuelen. I'm a Swansea City fan for my sins, and I'm also a member of the Jackcast um, podcast, which you can find on Twitter at the Jackcast. All right, and just so people at home know, we may have a late entrant, we may not, so uh, that'll be a surprise when and if it happens. Uh, let's lead off with you, Richard. Uh, comeback win today against Arsenal, uh, which is surprising because as uh, everybody was talking about all week, Guardiola doesn't know how to manage in the Premier League. Um, but let's start with the match and then kind of circle back to the Guardiola topic. Um, yeah, I thought um, City were pretty excellent today. The, um, the At the start, I literally, I think about four minutes and 30 seconds turned to my friend next to me and said how in, how sort of impressed we were with the tempo that City had started and how they um, began the game as the better team. And about 20 seconds later, they were losing. And even five minutes into the game, it, it sort of felt against the run of play. It was Arsenal's first real chance. City had sort of exerted themselves a lot better. And at that point, it, as soon as they scored, it felt a little bit like here we go again, because we've struggled so much to keep clean sheets recently. Um, the defence still really needs quite a lot of work. Um, and so it did feel, I wouldn't say, an in, I was going to say an injustice, but that would probably be a bit strong. But City, um, they stood off Sanchez as he approached, and it was too easy to get the ball into Walcott. And he finished, um, he finished quite easily, as a, a lot of players seem to be doing against us at the moment. But instead of heads dropping or um, forgetting the plan or the defence falling apart like it has done recently against Leicester and Chelsea uh, once we conceded a goal. It didn't happen um, and City were pretty uh, robust in the way they approached the game. They, they pressed really well, they kept a good tempo following the goal um, and I thought for the first 20 minutes I thought City were really, really impressive. They should have equalised on, I think it was the, the ninth or 10th minute when De Bruyne put a great ball in for Sterling, uh, who seemed to be playing quite a, a sort of central striking position um, because Aguero stupidly got himself suspended a, a few weeks ago and is still serving that ban. Uh, Guardiola doesn't seem to fancy Iheanacho at the moment on his own up front um, and opted not to start with Nolito despite him having a really good game against Watford midweek. Um, so Sterling had a great chance and managed to head wide when it looked easier to put it in. And 
as good as Sterling is and as much as I love him, he's a player whose head often drops once he's, he's missed a chance or something goes awry in the game for him. But again, it didn't happen for him. Um, he he sort of kept plugging away and he looked confident all game. Um, Arsenal didn't manage to create a, a whole load more chances. Um, half-time came with City still behind, which again, undeserved based on, I thought, the, the control that City had of the game. And then the second half was just absolutely fantastic. So he really kicked it up a gear, um, equalised very, very quickly with Leroy Sané's goal, who put in easily, easily the best performance he's put in for us yet. It was only his eighth or ninth appearance, um, and he's, he's flattered to deceive a little bit so far. And understandably, because he's only 20 and he's getting used to a new league and, and all that comes with that, and it's you know we, we mustn't judge him too soon. But... It felt like a big game to throw him into, given the fact that he hasn't been great so far. But he was excellent today. Some of his uh, some of his touches and his, his just his confidence on the ball, his willingness to work for his team, his speed, his strength is incredibly deceptive. He really, really was a thorn in Arsenal's side for I think the, the 75 minutes it was on the pitch, and it was justly rewarded with um, with his goal, and and it was a huge goal. And then after that, it was. It was basically non-stop City until about the last 10 minutes when, as always happens, when a team's a goal behind, Arsenal managed to sort of start pushing forward a little bit more. But um, yeah, City went 2-1 up, thanks to Sterling, who the, the ball that De Bruyne played for him was extraordinary. Sort of on the, the turn and volley and across the width of the pitch was fantastic. And then Sterling's play to cut inside, beat uh, Monreal and, and finish past Czech with his, with his left foot was a sign of what a different player Sterling's become this season under Guardiola. Um, he was, for me, he was the man of the match. But you could probably make a claim for, for almost any City player out there today, to be honest. Um, it was a very, very impressive team performance. And following Arsenal's defeat midweek at Everton, City did what they needed to do by sort of exposing that, that soft core that everybody in the world knows Arsenal have. They couldn't handle being pressed. They looked really rattled and sloppy uh, in the second half once things started to, to really go against them. And they, they really couldn't turn the momentum back in their favour. Um, one of the things that was key about what Guardiola did, and he did it midweek against Watford, he stuck with a settled back four. It was completely different from the defence that uh, got humiliated a week ago against Leicester um, where he tried about three different defensive formations across the game um, he took it right back to basics in midweek against Watford by I mean the fullbacks barely pushed forward at all although when they did Zabaleta was rewarded you know he got his reward with a goal um, and it, it was quite similar to that today he stuck with exactly the same back four and although it was still very clearly a Guardiola-type performance, as in wanting to control possession and control the space, and um, you know, not not hoof it forward too much. There was, I don't know, an acceptance that things need to be a little bit more basic. That players like Kolarov and Otamendi and Clichy haven't quite grasped exactly what Guardiola has been trying to do with the um, some of the positional changes that he's been he's been trying to implement that did work so well in the first ten games, but have gone awry since. Um, it was just a, it seems to have gone a bit more for stability um, mm. rather than some of the, I don't know, more advanced defending that he's been trying to implement. He, he seems to have accepted that actually some of the players aren't good enough to, to get what he's doing or certainly not get it so quickly, which is um, quite a big thing to admit. 
yeah. uh, and to to then work with Andy, he deserves credit for actually doing that. And and some people will try and write that as sort of is accepted that his style doesn't work in the Premier League or um, will or are already trying to paint it as a bit of a defeat for Guardiola and, and paint it as though you know the, the you have to adapt, you have to change for the Premier League. He's not a, a stupid man. He, he played differently at Bayern Munich to how he did at Barcelona. He's not rigid in what he has to do. It's just all based on this idea of keeping possession and controlling the game that way. And he hasn't surrendered any of that, it, but it is admittedly a slightly more pragmatic approach that he's taken the last two games, but it's worked. So it might be, in terms of style, uh, a little step back from what he's tried to implement, but in terms of the results and building the confidence to have another crack at it, then it's a massive step forward. Um, and he deserves a, a lot of credit for working that out. He's clearly managed to get a, a sort of different message across to his players very quickly. Mm. Yeah, uh, a lot of that uh, tactical stuff you just shared with us was, I want to say overlooked. But uh, as I mentioned in the lead, and Guardiola caught a lot of flack this week after the approach to Leicester. And uh, without any of that bandwagon jumping of just attacking him, <laughs> Full out. Uh, we did speak with uh, Jim Knight, who's our uh, Leicester representative last week, and had a brief discussion about how it did almost seem like a naive approach because you mentioned the possession, but everybody found out last year that when you play Leicester, you actually want them to have the ball. They do very poorly with it. They catch you on the counter, and it seemed like the way Pep approached that game was a very uh, 2015 kind of approach to playing Leicester. Uh, so I was just wondering if you shared that opinion and if that was of any concern uh, at the time. Um, well, last week, yeah, I mean, it, it was, oh, I suppose, naive is probably a fair word. One of the things that surprises me about it is that Guardiola is known for being an incredibly meticulous manager. Um, if um, There's no reason why either of you would have read this, I suppose. But I spent the summer reading Pep Confidential, which is the book about his first season at Bayern Munich, where mm. the writer had sort of ridiculous levels of access to the club. Um, and one of the things that he wrote about that really drove home to me sort of about how he plans for a game is that he would have his coaches watch the last 50 like corners that their next opponents had taken. You imagine how many games that might span uh, back through. You would have them watch them and look for patterns um, and anywhere where they might be exploited and all that stuff. And that, as an example of how um, of how he prepares and how meticulous he is, then makes it surprising that he um, sort of fell into Leicester's trap from last season that they have not been able to get going with this season. I mean, they're really not a very good team this year we came up against them as you know we're a team that fancies ourselves for the title and Leicester were although it may not remain this case for the season they were a team sort of entrenched in an early relegation battle with how close they are um, to the bottom three um, and you would think that City should be the better team in in that case but um, yeah they, they fell into the trap very very early on of just being caught out with I mean it, it was also Pep's always going to play with a high defensive line. That's not something that's going to change. And sometimes you will get caught out with that. Um, and we, we suffered greatly for that, which I don't think is necessarily a case of planning for Leicester. Um, that was a case of... I suppose that comes back to what I'm talking about, about his defenders not being good enough to do what he wants to do. Um, I think the, the four goals we conceded against Leicester and then the, th the three goals we conceded against Chelsea before that, almost all of them were 
the high line being broken and then you can see Kolarov and, and Otamendi or John Stone sort of really struggling to get back with the defender who's breaking through. In Kolarov and Otamendi, we've not got the pace to play against fast strikers once they've broken that line. And that means that that line has to be absolutely perfect because it's too easy to exploit. Um, and the nature of that is, you know, strikers like Vardy or um, when William got through, they end up in relatively central positions around the box where the, percent, the percentage chance of them scoring is massively in their favour. Um, and we've been sort of ruthlessly punished for that recently. So there was certainly an element of him um, perhaps being a bit naive about what Leicester were going to do. But I think rather than not planning for Leicester's strength, he had maybe not planned enough for his own defender's weaknesses, if that makes sense. Mm. Or maybe he was like trying to design something on the whole for the rest of the season and didn't feel like he could change it for one week just because Leicester seemed to be the thing that can break that system. Yeah, possibly. I mean, he is, you know, his style, um, it's a bit of an odd one when I talk about this because I'm really, I always try and like stress that my feeling of Guardiola is not that he's not adaptable, but he does obviously have a very set style. Everything does have to be built around possession and it does basically all start with the defence. He has to have his defence right to be able to um, do everything else that he wants to do. And so, yeah, I, I do think what he's trying to do with the defence is set it up not just for the rest of the season, but further than that. It's for the next three years that he's going to be here. Um, and, yeah, he, he clearly doesn't want to uh, let that go for the sake of one game or, um, you know, for worrying about one fast player that we might come up against. But I think maybe he realised just how ruthlessly that can be exploited um, and that he does need to except now that, like I say, the likes of Kolarov and Otamendi can't quite do what he wants them to. And so he has to make that little adjustment now to allow the team to, I don't know, for the, for the team to improve and, and get his style um, and, and build the confidence through getting results for him to then be able to go back and sort of start tweaking the defence again, which quite honestly is going to require um, some recruitment and some... Uh, some good defensive signings and outgoings rather than just working with the players that he's got. Mm. All right, and from one of the greatest tactical managers uh, in the world to uh, maybe not so much <laughs> with Bob Bradley, uh, get to uh, two weeks ago, was it three weeks ago now? Things were looking up for Swansea. You kept your first clean sheet, you scored three goals, Lorente had four goals in, in three or four matches. It was looking really good, and then things kind of started to dip again. What's been going on uh, at the Liberty of late? Believe it or not, that that first clean sheet in a while and the three 0 win that was just last week. Um, what? No, that seems like wow. such a long time ago now. Um, yeah, beat Sunderland last week in undoubtedly the best performance of the season. Um, it, you know, the first time that Bob Bradley has picked a sensible team, the first time that he has picked players in the correct position, um, and, and the first time really that we've seen players. Um, show the right kind of attitude if I'm honest for an entire 90 minutes um, we were hoping that was you know not not something that would spark a great turnaround but it, it was just maybe a sign that they were that, that they were starting to learn and starting to improve slightly um, we weren't expecting great things but um, I, you know the, the, the match against West Brom was one way uh, in, in midweek was one way uh, actually Swan, Swansea were decent in the first half but as soon as they conceded one goal, they can they they were you know they they conceded another two within within well, a, a couple of minutes 
Um, and, you know, that, that is kind of a sign of really the mental fragility of this side. And it was even more obvious against Middlesbrough uh, on Saturday because that that was the performance of a team which really doesn't believe it's capable of doing well in this league. Um, Swansea started really well uh, on the front foot, very positive, pressing high, um, passing the ball pretty well. But uh, and Middlesbrough were dreadful. They really did start appallingly badly. But they had one attack, which drew a, a decent save from uh, Lukas Fabianski. And from that point on, Swansea just became terrified. They, they, they were scared of their own shadows. Um, they, they, from that moment on, didn't get close to any Middlesbrough players. Um, they, they, rev- they just stood back as far as they could. Um, and Middlesbrough's players were uh, half a second quicker to react to absolutely everything which went on in the pitch. Um, the first goal was a brilliant finish from Negredo, but it does it, it was once again Middlesbrough's players just thinking far quicker than Swansea's players, uh, and, and uh, you know us just being a little bit too hesitant to do absolutely everything. Um, the second goal came from a penalty. Okay, it shouldn't have. Being Middlesbrough's throw-in in the first place, they, they, you know, they shouldn't have got the ball. But um, Jordi Amat, who it's just, just looks like a lunatic as soon as Swansea go goal down in any game. He is as mentally weak as any player we've got. Um, just conceded the most stupid foul in the box. Really did. Um, and, uh, you know, you're 2-0 down. <sighs> what, about halfway through the first half? And... and from that moment on, you you know that you're not going to get anything out of this game, which was a very big game against a team just three points above us, one of our main relegation rivals. But it it, it was over from that point on, and um, you know they put the, the one, well, they got the third goal just uh, at the start of the second half, just to kill the game off entirely. There was there was a bit of improvement from the Swans after that, but. Um, yeah, you know that was only because Middlesbrough were very happy with their three pointer and and decided to sit back a little bit. It was just, um, it was a game which once again showed the the lack of quality in the squad. That's something that we've been saying for so so long now. We warned in the summer that this squad was not good enough, um, but you know the the powers that be at the club clearly felt that they could get away with it for a second season in a row. Well, they're being proved wrong. and But on top of that, I mean, last season, the reason we stayed up was that you had players like um, Ashley Williams and, and, uh, and Andre Ayew who, you know, could lead by example. Um, play, players who had that little bit, you know, even when, when things were going badly, you could turn to them for a bit of leadership. Uh, and they, they could organise the players around them a little bit and show them the way, even if the players around them weren't good enough. Um I mean, this season, the only player we've got that's anything like that is Gelfie Sigurdsson. And he just looks, he, he just looks distraught at the kind of situation that he's been left in, um, where all the good players that he once had around him um, have either aged to the point where they are no longer up to Premier League standards or they've left the club. And he's the last one there, really, having to do all the work. Um, bit unfair on him, no matter how good a player he is, but it's it's just another game where it it just rams home everything we've been saying with the team what whatever formation you try whatever 
I mean, I mean Bob Bob Bradley is not up to the job. We know that. But what manager could, which manager who would actually be interested in taking over the Swans at this point would um, w- w- would be able to turn this around? Um, it, it's just too much work um, at this point to, to be able to turn things around. Kind of on that note, uh, I was talking with some friends and saying, well, they, they were just like, are Swansea going down? And while I thought that was harsh, I was saying that you could probably buy your way to safety if the new owners did at least financially back Bradley, if they <laughs> insist on keeping him around. But my question for you would be, would you rather spend big in January to try to stay up? Or would you rather kind of try to stay financially healthy and then be just willing to toss the dice? Maybe you stay up, maybe you don't, and then try to come back up uh, as maybe a little bit more of a um, resolute unit as opposed to a, a team that would have overspent, been out a lot of money, and still maybe not stayed up. This is a conversation that started after the Middlesbrough defeat um, on Saturday. Um, more, more really along the lines of, is there any point in spending in January, or do we just accept that there's too much work to be done there? Um, and, and, you know, the, the kind of players that we would be bringing in, would they be, you know, the right kind of players? Or are, are we better just waiting until the seemingly inevitable relegation and actually doing a proper rebuilding job top to bottom uh, next summer with the hope of just building, uh, well, starting off a new long-term plan which could eventually lead us back to the Premier League. My My feeling is that any money we spend in January is just going to be a little bit pointless. You're going to be bringing in players. You're not going to be able to attract good players no matter how much you spend. I don't think the new owners are a wash with cash. I don't think they're, um, you know, they're they're not billionaires. They're they're quite modest, really, in comparison to to most Premier League um, owners. Um, and I think the players that we'd be able to attract in our current position, they they probably wouldn't be able to keep us up, if if we're being honest. And you you could maybe say that it, we we. We could do what um, Derby tried to do when when they had their dreadful season, uh, their eleven point season, and, and just buy players who would be, uh, you know, maybe able to do something in the Premier League. Who knows? But they definitely stick around if you went down to the Championship. There is an argument for saying that, um, but then again, do you want those players to spend half a season hanging around with a bunch of losers, uh, having their morale destroyed as we've seen every other? Play and you know every, everybody else's morale be be destroyed. Um, you know, do you want to do you want them to be tarnished with that relegation, or do you want them to come into a club in in June or July, which just says, okay, we're starting fresh, we're forgetting about that, we're going to have a new manager, we're going to have a pretty much entirely new squad, and we're going to try and build something new here in a new league. Um, I'd actually say that that it might sound defeatist, but. I I probably go for that option if I'm honest, just because I don't want to be saddled with a bunch of losers at the end of the season who um, took one last pay packet in the Premier League before dropping down to the Championship, having won like one or maybe two games at the club. Um, so it might, like I said, it might th- sound like we're throwing in the towel, but uh, bottom line, I don't. You know, you said you said that. Oh, is there a way that they could buy this buy themselves to safety? No, that's there are just too many things wrong with this club. You'd, it, more, it, it wouldn't even be a matter of buying 
you know, good players. We need to, we still look, we're still looking for a captain. You know, we don't have that, something that basic as uh, one player in the team who can lead them and who can inspire, who can, not not even inspire, we're not even looking for an Ashley Williams type character. We're looking for somebody who can lead by a bit of example, organise if need be, and, and just, you know, be that kind of solid role model um, that, that, that can get the players around him a bit more confident. Um we we we'll we'll we just we have no basics in place. Uh, we've got one of the best free kick takers in the league, one of the most pro- probably one of the best number tens in the league, if I'm being honest, um, mm. at, at, in Gilfie Sigerton. But nothing else around him, absolutely nothing else. We've got a, a wonderful player there, but the, the rest of the system is completely broken down. Um, And I was thinking during the Middlesbrough game, you know, which one of these players would we actually want if we were to make a promotion push next season in the Championship? But there are very few, very few of them. Certainly, you know, maybe Alfie Mawson in defence because he's a youngster, you could probably mould into a good player. But, um, you know, one or two of the midfielders maybe, uh, that maybe Modu Barrow would be a decent option on the wing, you know, his pace in the Championship. But but generally you don't want them because they're mentally just too weak for that kind of challenge, um, and it's better we're better off just getting rid of those and, and rebuilding fresh in the summer. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, uh, Tottenham. We uh, use another formation today, a four three three. If if my math's right, that means we've had six different formations in the last ten matches. Which if you had told me last year. I would have called you a crazy person because Poch had been so married to the 4-2-3-1 before. Um, and so I will continue to say that while I would like us to find something and then just stick with it, um, it is uh, g- good to see from Pochettino that he's willing to try new things. He mentioned it in the summer that he was going to try new things this year. I don't think any of us were prepared for this amount of new things uh, being tried, but uh on the whole it seems to have worked more times than it has not um although in the formation that we rolled out in today uh, it does require width from at least someone in the front three and with Erickson and Della Ali being those two um not so much what happened we ended up way heavily relying on Walker and Rose uh the former of which started the game very poorly with uh very 2013 era Kyle Walker mistakes um, that really used to define him and really mar his reputation in the game. He did get away with a couple of them, uh, but their goal did lead directly from a Kyle Walker error where he tried to knock the ball around one of the attacking players, but instead just <laughs> allowed him to run at pace into the box. And then there were some other errors in there as well, but the Kyle Walker one definitely started it. But then he uh, and Del Ali, who had also been frustrating to that point, um, combined for the equalizer, so... Uh, got that monkey off his back pretty quickly there. Uh, and it was very precise. Just a, a through ball on the ground to Del Ali, who lost his man in traffic and was able to slot it home. So that was very pleasing. We pretty much bossed the game from, from there on out. Although they did have like random five to ten minute pockets uh, where they did threaten us a little bit. But all in all, it was definitely our game uh, for the most part. Uh, Rose scored the equalizer off of a Sissoko assist, which I... I Cannot stress, and I tweeted this earlier, there is nothing that Musa Sissoko could do for the club that would be worth the $30 million that we paid for him. But we are at least finally starting to see some of the glimpses of the player that did catch the eye at you know the Euros and maybe in the, the scouting and recruiting rooms at, at Tottenham that made us interested in the first place. <laughs> People immediately 
we're pointing out that he does this for three or four matches in a row and then disappears again. But at a club like Tottenham, he can do that. Hopefully by then we'll have Lamella back. We aren't counting on him to win matches. Uh, but if he can help us win some, that's obviously delightful. But we don't need him to, uh, which I think is a very fine difference. But was pleased with him in this one. There is a stat floating around that Musa Sissoko now has the same amount of assists as Mesut Ozil in the Premier League. While true, um, I'm not so sure that helps the statistical community. Uh, when stuff like that floats around, and people are like, right, so Sissoko's as good as Otso. Like, mm, didn't didn't say all that, but uh, I'm sure Richard will know Otso has not been in terrific form and once again kind of <laughs> let himself down today. Uh, but Sissoko is not a better player. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to ruin that little bit of a, a <laughs> narrative that was floating around in the Tottenham sphere. But uh, it is good to see uh, Sissoko actually doing something that benefits the team. Um we are, uh, oh, <laughs> I did, <laughs> the other thing I said was that he also, and we need to put it into context, Sissoko has Lovren syndrome, where he set the bar so low coming into the club that anything above average is miraculous. And you're like, oh, wow, what a player. You're like, eh, you know, we'll see. Um, but hopefully he does end up being uh, at least a helpful player to the squad throughout the rest of the season. And he'll probably help out in the Europa League and stuff like that. Um, all in all, pretty pleased with with where we are right now. This was the week last season when we got into the top four uh, for the first time. It looks like we're pushing up. We always have a very good winter period. I don't know why, and I really wish I looked up a stat before I said that out loud. It just feels like every winter we really make ground on everyone else, so that would be delightful if we could start a run like that. All right, now on to the topic, which is going to allow Gitto to be a lot happier than he just was, is what were your favorite footballing moments of this year, the calendar year, as it draws to a close? Uh, so Gitto, we'll lead off with you, and I assume we're going to hear more about Wales than we will Swansea. Yes, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, from a Swansea point of view, there are very few bright moments in 2016. It's been the, a year of terrible football, terrible results. Uh, we've had... Um, well, I think yeah, I think two different managers. It's it's tough to keep count at Swansea these days, but um, but neither of them have been much good, uh, and we've had two sets of owners too. Um, again, neither of them have been very good. Um, so it's it's been a year to forget really at Swansea City. Um, if I was to pick one positive, undoubtedly the one that sticks out is the last away game of last season when we went to uh, Upton Park. Um, they were uh, West Ham were challenging for. Um, the Champions League. It was meant to be their final away game. It was meant to be their final match ever at uh, Upton Park. But of course, due to a rearranged Manchester United game, that turned out to be it. But um, real, I just got that it wasn't the last game at Upton Park because it would be a great send off. Um, Swansea were brilliant, 1 4 1, um, gave us fleeting hope that there may be better times ahead. That was quickly destroyed. Um, but it, it, it led us into a wonderful summer for, for Welsh football, the best summer for Welsh football. Uh, I'm sure this is everybody's highlight of 2016, not just mine. Um, I, it, it was, I was out in France um, for the entire group stage of the Euros and uh, went back out there for the quarterfinal against Belgium. Uh, it was just an unbelievable experience to be there, um, to be watching. You know, when, it, when you're Welsh, you, you dream your entire life to... Um, you know, see see a team in a, in a major tournament, and you don't actually think it's ever going to happen. Um, not only did we qualify, we we went there, we played some brilliant football, we reached the semi finals, 
um, and it created a buzz the like of which I've never seen in the country. Um, it, it got absolutely everybody involved. It was uh, as much a, a cultural sort of coming, coming together and uh, a, a cultural success as it was a sporting success. Um, I don't think I've ever been so proud to be a Welshman, <laughs> to be a fan of any sports team. Uh, it was just brilliant. Um, if I was looking at sort of more general, more widely, if there was to be like a Premier League highlight, um, obviously like Leicester with a big story of 2016, um, you know that that was an absolutely unbelievable success. You know, whatever you say about the weakness of the Premier League last season, for it, you know, we've had weak Premier Leagues in the past, uh, and and no team like Leicester has ever come close to to to. to well, no team like Leicester's ever qualified for the Champions League, let alone win the Championship. Um, so you know the the whole of the second half of last season was was incredible for them. If I was to pick up one match, um, which I say claimed to find their their run, um, Richard's not going to like me saying this. <laughs> was the three 0 at, at the Etihad where everybody sort of said, "Oh, oh, so they're not going away. They're they're actually going to like hang about and, and make a real." You know, go have a real go at this. Um, I think it kind of made everybody realise that Leicester were capable of doing what they did, and it, it's a match that stood out for me from last season. But generally, I mean, 2016 for me as a Swansea City fan has been one long um, year of misery and uh, depression, with that wonderful golden summer in the middle, which just happens to be the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. So strange year, really. <laughs> I I feel um, in the midst of that, that City have been done a massive disservice because that, that defeat to Leicester, we did score a goal at the end. Um, so it's the 3-1 humiliation, <laughs> not the 3-0. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I understand why you would forget. Um, I try to put it out of my mind too, to be honest. But um, yeah, were I not um, a City fan, then to be fair, that would be one of my highlights too. Um, and taking apart the fact that obviously I wanted City to win the league, Leicester winning the Premier League is it is the club highlight of the year, isn't it, for all the reasons that, uh, that Guto said and that everybody else has said it a million times through the year. Um, it was great to see uh, a manager who's paid his dues like Ranieri, who was tipped for relegation, uh, who has failed in a, a couple of jobs recently and, you know, had a, a, a terrible time of it when he uh, when he was managing Greece. Uh, there was the Faroe Islands there he got beat by that lost him his job. Um, everything about it seemed sort of down and out and yet they they did what nobody could ever have thought they could do. And if anything, their struggles this season only make what happened last season even more remarkable. So, uh, yeah, they, they have to be the undoubted Premier League highlight as a whole. Um, for us, uh, for City, there's, there's two things that stand out. I mean, the, the individual moment as, a, um, as an off-the-pitch one would be the announcement that Guardiola was going to be taking over. That happened on February the 1st. I remember uh, being at work and uh, getting a text message saying, Pellegrini has just confirmed that he's leaving. And as if that wasn't all my Christmases coming at once, within minutes, it was announced that, um, in you know, the same conference announced by Pellegrini himself, I believe, that, um, that, that Guardiola would be stepping in. And I got very, very excited and had to remove myself from my uh, working area. Um, because I 
sort of lost my professionalism for a moment. As you can imagine, I'm always very, very professional. Um, but I needed to go and sort of read all this news that the manager that I'd wanted as city's manager for the last three years was, was finally taking the job. Um, and that that was fantastic. And then on the pitch, um, I said there was there was one moment. Um, the one I was going to go for was winning the derby at Old Trafford in the league, when for the first. 45 minutes I thought it was the best I'd possibly ever seen City um, and I believed in that moment that we were going to go on and, and win the Premier League obviously um, things aren't quite going that way at the moment and, and Chelsea looks sensational but in that moment to be in that away end at Old Trafford when we were absolutely taking United apart and then the whole of Old Trafford was um, a touch more silent than usual and with Guardiola taking the spoils against Mourinho it just just everything everything was perfect about that day um, but there was also uh, again as a, as a city highlight de bruyne's goal against psg in the the home leg of the champions league quarter final felt like a real sort of um we've made it moment which might sound a bit odd because you know as a team that's won two premier league titles in the last 5 years it does still sometimes feel like we're mixing it at a level that we don't really deserve and it still feels like something's something's missing a little bit and it will take success in Europe or defending a Premier League title it will take that for us to really really feel part of that elite and so finally cracking the Champions League to the point that we could make it to the last four um, was a huge moment and that goal in itself um, it did. It, I think it changed the, what the Champions League feels like to City fans a little bit. Not completely. There's still a lot of scepticism about it, and um, it still hasn't fully caught on. But that was in what wasn't a great game. It was a great moment and a, a great night um, that we could then play in the Champions League semi-final against Real Madrid. That still feels like a big thing, despite the fact that we're you know meant to be a big club and, and not really think with that supposedly small mentality anymore. It was great. Yeah, on a global football scale, the Leicester thing, weirdly, didn't really make me feel like a fairy tale. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. But what, what it was for me was there, there were a lot of people that were kind of poo-pooing international football this summer with the Euros. Although I don't think I saw much of it about the Copa America, which was actually a more entertaining competition beginning to end. But just the stories we got out of the Euros uh, with Northern Ireland and Iceland and you already mentioned Wales. It was just really fun to watch countries like that and get to like we got to speak with you while you were over there and you already mentioned it was one of the best days of your life just like getting that emotion we also had Steve McGookin on who's Northern Irish and he was over there as well and I don't know there was just something about that that was it's kind of like the romantic part about football like a lot of times it's easy to get carried away with you know narratives and stats and well, what does this mean for the future? But there were some moments at the Euros that were just genuinely terrific. The first introduction to the Icelandic clap that is now way overused by people that have no reason to use it um, after they'd won that match and then they all ran to the corner and did it. I, I thought that was one of the one of the best sporting moments of the year, let alone uh, just in football. So wanted to mention that. Um, for Tottenham, uh, it obviously didn't did not end up working out because of uh, Leicester's title win, but... There was a two-match stretch, um, the Manchester United match and the Stoke match, where we really, we really started to believe. And even though it didn't come about that in the moment, again, it was just so blissful. Against Manchester United, we had one of those four-pass goals where it was Larice to Walker to, uh, I forget who it was out on the wing, and I think Lamella finished it off. Um, and we just looked so lethal. The football we were playing was so terrific. 
and it was just uh, devastating stuff from us against Manchester United, who you know we were worried would maybe stem our title hopes. Uh, I think that got us within eight. Then the next weekend is when we beat Stoke 4-0. And those matches were all on Mondays. So, like, Leicester had already done what they were going to do. And it was up to us to either try to level them or try to jump ahead of them. Uh, and the fact that we did was was so pleasing at the time. Again, you know, <laughs> in the end, it uh, didn't really matter. But at the time, it was just so terrific to see a club like Tottenham even have a title hope. I know Richard mentioned, you know, with the Champions League with Manchester City that they finally felt like they belonged up there. Um, and last year, while it was a disappointment that we ended up falling to third, it showed that we, we at least deserve to be in that conversation of some of the better teams in the Premier League. And the fact that we were up so high that even slipping at the end in such a disappointing way to Newcastle, even though we did that, we were still in the Champions League. We didn't leave it late. We, because we were aiming for the title, falling meant that we still landed in a guaranteed Champions League spot. And obviously we didn't do enough with that. Uh, but again, it, it was so pleasing last season, and uh, we're a very young team. We've seen some regression from Del Ali and from Eric Dyer, and Kane has looked a little bit off the market times this season. But I think uh, the the best thing about this this club is how young we still are, and how everybody still has a lot of room to grow. And I think we can be even more interesting, and maybe make even better memories in the future. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and now we will head into Player Watch, where we're quickly going to talk about players that impressed and disappointed in our club's most recent fixture. Uh, if there's nobody that disappointed, or in Gitto's case, maybe if there's no one that impressed, you can mention somebody from the other team uh, that was particularly of note. We'll lead off with Richard. Um, impressed for City, um, there were, well, a few that impressed. I already touched on Sané and Sterling. Um, De Bruyne was excellent and really stepped up. But the one for me that I think is worthy of note because he's usually only spoke about in critical terms, uh, Fernando was absolutely fantastic and is actually looking surprisingly crucial to, to Guardiola's team. And we definitely, definitely look better with him. He provides a uh, he provides a support in front of the defence that no other player... Um, oh, no, that's not fair. I was going to say that no other player does. I mean, Fernandinho does do that, but Fernandinho has so much more to his game as well. That he, the midfield can still be caught out um, when he's sort of pushing up. But with... 
with Fernando there, literally just anchoring and really just concentrating on the defensive side of the game, uh, he was he was excellent um, and and plays a very similar role to sort of the I think the player that's still held up as the ideal sort of defensive midfielder. He, he, he sort of played a similar role today to how Makélélé used to play at Chelsea. It was just accepting what he needed to do for the the benefit of the team. Um, which he always does. It's just usually he doesn't do it very well. But against uh, recently against Burnley, he was excellent. He was good in the um, the dead rubber Champions League game against Celtic, and he, he just adds something under Guardiola that he didn't add under Pellegrini. He, he doesn't look as slow. He doesn't look as cumbersome and flat-footed. His passing is a lot better. His range of passing is a lot better. Um, he. He's better in possession, um, but he screens that defence so well at the moment that um, it would be, he has to sort of be acknowledged because the other players, we all know, have got that quality. Um, but for Fernando, it's been so fleeting in his time at City that if Guardiola's getting something out of him, then then great. And that's going to be particularly crucial in uh, Gundogan's absence, which looks like it's going to be season-long. Um, and obviously, Fernandinho's been suspended recently, so... Um, I didn't fancy playing against Arsenal uh, with Sanchez and, and Ozil and Awobi and Walcott running at us uh, with a, a flat-footed Fernando, but he, he did better than I could possibly have hoped for. So it's very nice to see. Um, and that leads me nicely on to disappointing plays because there weren't any for City today. Um, so uh, I'd have to go with Ozil for, for Arsenal. He was dreadful. Um, but dreadful by not that he did a whole lot wrong he just wasn't in the game he, he let it completely pass him by um i think his stats after the game i saw briefly and it was like it, it was something as poor as one completed pass no chances uh created no shots um and he was genuinely anonymous and, and again to the point that people after the game were saying the kind of thing that's normally said in jest but they were being genuine sort of forgot about him and almost didn't criticise him after the game or talk about how bad he was because they forgot he was even on the pitch. It was just, it passed him by completely. And I wouldn't, I don't think I could, as much as I'd like to build that as how well City did to keep him out of the game. Um, it wasn't that, I don't know if he, if he didn't fancy it or if his head wasn't there or, or whatever. Um, but thankfully for us, um, it was really, really poor, um, which probably doesn't stand him in good stead in his current contract negotiations. Yep, definitely agree with you there. Not picking the right time to do that. I did see a tweet. It was like, Mesut Ozil trying to show uh, Wenger what it would be like at Arsenal without him next year. Um, but it, it does have to be concerning that Ozil has been vacant really the last two matches. He really wasn't very present in the Everton one as well. Um for Tottenham, uh, the player that impressed has to be Danny Rose. And there's a conversation that I've intentionally avoided for the better part of a year that floats around in Tottenham spheres, which is, is Danny Rose the best left back in the Premier League? And it is a very difficult conversation to have because everyone, myself included, remembers when he was kind of garbage, which is a very hard thing to get past. But in matches like this one, he locked down the left so well defensively, also gets forward and scores the goal. What I will say, which I will, I'm still not sure that I can say he's de facto the best left back in the Premier League. Although there is a conversation there, just like I said, very hard to do. He can do either thing, defensive, defending or attacking, 
as well as any other left back in the Premier League. And it's possible that his combination of both leads him to being the best left back in the Premier League, where maybe others are better at getting forward and others are better defensively, that his, what I still consider to be B-plus level at both, on average, makes him the best. It's it's entirely possible, but this is sounding negative when I'm trying to praise him, but he really was brilliant for us today and has been for a while and I, I tend to try to avoid that conversation because a lot of people and people that I respect very much in this industry still have very negative views on him that, to, to be polite, I would say perhaps may be out of date. But um, Danny Rose, on the whole, is a very good left back these days and was terrific for us uh, today scoring the winner. But it, he would have been up there regardless. Uh, as for somebody that disappointed... Uh, it's first half Kyle Walker. Second half Kyle Walker was great again, but that's just very uh, typically him of years past uh, with the errors sometimes overwhelming the performance. But, you know, he got his head straight and then played a very good second half of the match. Uh, Della Ali, I'm still kind of wondering um, when he's going to find his form of last year. Conversely to Rose, uh, Della Ali's reputation was saved a lot by his goal because otherwise I think people would have been very much questioning why he was continuing to, to get the start uh, over a player like Youngman Son, who, by the way, looks absolutely terrific this season. And last year, I, I complained a lot about Son's first touch and how awful it was, and was wondering what was going on. And then we found out he had a foot injury, plantar fasciitis, for those that know, is a very cruel mistress and hurts to just walk, let alone play a sport that so actively uses your feet. Um but I, I am now willing to super double down on that being the cause because some of his touches this season have been terrific. Taking him out of the air, even even on the floor when it's a hard pass, his, he's cushioning them brilliantly, which <laughs> he's a professional footballer. It shouldn't be something of note, but just worth pointing out that the growth from last year to this year, I think would be almost impossible to do through training. I think it's really just a health issue that it may have hurt to do it last season and now it doesn't, so... Uh, a little shout out there for Hyungman Sun as well. All right, and now I've realized that I just entirely skipped Gitto, so uh, painful though it may be. Uh, who was of note in that Swansea match? Uh, the only player who had anything like a good game was Gilfie Sigurdsson, um, but yeah, nobody, nobody really um, played particularly well for Swansea. Uh, if I was pick somebody for Middlesbrough. Um, it, it was just a, a pretty good team performance by Middlesbrough, I thought. Um, Martin Derone in midfield um, played far better than I've ever seen him play before. Um, he, he looks to actually be settling now, well, well settling into Premier League really well, and um, and, and you know get, getting used to the way things are done in, in a Premier League midfield. Uh, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, I mean, who played badly? Uh, pretty much everybody, but the one who stood out for me yesterday was Jordi Amat. Um, bit of a, he's he's been in the club for quite a few years now, but never managed to nail down a, a starting spot, despite looking promising whenever he's played. Um, and to, this season was meant to be his, you know, big chance to shine, um, and, and he has disappointed massively. He um, he's had a difficult job, no doubt, in you know basically stepping into 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 the shoes of Ashley Williams. Um, so he's had a t he's it's been tough to replace Ash, but uh, every time I watch Jordi Amat play, he just looks like a lunatic as soon as the Swans go goal down. Um, he just snaps mentally and makes all the wrong decisions, jumps into tackles, fouls flat out, 
doesn't read the game properly, loses all focus. And that was, again, the case at Middlesbrough on Saturday. It, it, he just... And, and he's meant to be the senior partner there alongside young Alfie Mawson, who looks promising, but at the moment you feel is not getting a proper education um, at, at Swansea because he's surrounded by, by by just losers at the moment and, and people who he shouldn't be learning off. Uh, and Jordi Amat is, is one of those. I mean, um, he, he stood out yesterday just in his complete and utter madness um, in, in everything he did as soon as Swansea went uh, went down the goal. And, um, you know, even if we went down, uh, Jordi Amat is not the kind of personality that you want in a defence at any level, if I'm honest, not just Premier League Championship, at any level, you have to have that that mental strength to play centre-back um, effectively, whatever level you play at. And he's just too immature and, and, and gets led astray far too easily um, to, be, to be trusted uh, at centre-back. Agreed on all points there. Uh, all right, so now we will do uh, match previews real quickly, even though they are quite some ways off at this point uh, on Boxing Day or later in the case of Tottenham. Uh, but we will lead off with you, Gitto. Uh, you're going to be hosting a West Ham team that have not been performing well this season. Is this kind of a six-pointer for you? Oh, it's a weird one, really. I mean, they'll they'll be coming down here thinking, oh, well, this is one team that they can't really underperform. You know, they, they can't lose to at least. Um, I, I watched the highlights against Hull and it struck me that they were extremely lucky to win that game. They they did not look good. I know the highlights can sometimes be misleading, but but it did seem like a broken team um, uh, when they played against Hull. Um, uh, hopefully they'll play like that again at the Liberty, give us a, a little bit of a chance. But, um, you know, we, we've... And in fairness to to Paul Bradley, you know we have won our last two home games, um, so there may be some kind of cause for optimism there. Playing against a team that's really out of sorts, we've won the last two home games. One of them actually very impressively against Sunderland, um, but I am just clutching at straws. Um, I, I fear, and um, uh, you know you you just don't know. Whenever you get your hopes up with the Swans these days, they they'll soon end up crushing them. So I I really don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Um, I, I mean we we were playing against a, a relegation rival in Middlesbrough, a, another team who haven't actually been very good this season, um, but they won three nil. Um, I mean I mean a team that you thought was incapable of scoring three goals against anybody scored three goals against us. Um, so you know that's that's the kind of situation that we're in at the moment, and for that reason I can't allow myself to, to see any kind of opportunities in West Ham's dismal performance against Hull on Saturday. It would get my hopes up slightly over Christmas and then end up ruining the entire festive period for me. Yeah, and then on to you, Richard. You're going to be traveling to Hull, a team with issues of their own. Are you expecting to see a win here? Yes, um, I am. Um they are, you know, they're, they're not a good team, are they? They're in dreadful form. Um, and we are, despite our recent problems um, that have been cast aside a touch with the Watford and Arsenal victories, um, but despite our recent problems, we are, we're good away from home. Um, the, the Leicester game, in that sense, was massively anomalous. Um, I think we are on six wins away in the league this season. And last year, we only managed seven in total. So we've massively improved in that regard. 
um, the the pressure of not playing in front of our own fans and of playing away where teams have to have some obligation to come forward against us, even if it's only um, minimal. The teams do tend to have to try and attack you a little bit at home. That seems to serve us well because it gives us it gives us space to to play through and, and lines to break and get behind. Um, and I see no reason why the, a squad that is or a team that has just managed to put two goals past Arsenal um, wouldn't also be able to exploit space against a massively massively inferior whole team. Um, We'll have Fernandinho back from suspension and it's the last game of Aguero's suspension. I am quite interested to see what Guardiola does up front because for the three games so far of Aguero's suspension, uh, he's mixed it up. He started Ian Acho at Leicester, who was really poor, um, not without uh, company in, in that sense because um, the rest of the team were as well, but he was noticeably bad. Um, and Guardiola doesn't quite seem to fancy him as a lone striker yet. He played Nolito against Watford, who was excellent. Um, and then today he didn't play a recognised striker at all. Um, and, and sort of seemed to leave that to Sterling there to play central and as the most advanced player, which did pay off. Um, so I'll be very interested to see what he does there. My inclination is that he'll probably put Nolito back in, uh, which I'm all in favour of because he's looking like an absolutely magnificent signing and uh, works so hard offers the team so much in terms of versatility um, and quality uh, and then that leaves the only real questions with being with the defence I would be very surprised if he left John Stones out for a third game running because despite some of the criticism that Stones has got uh, or has received recently and some of the mistakes he's made all his mistakes come because the team around him um, aren't quite up to his standard or the defence around him aren't up to his standard he's the only defender we've got that is clearly capable of playing the way that Guardiola wants to progress into um, and so when you see him make his, his dodgy back passes like the one against Leicester when you've tends to be a point where if you freeze the frame and, and look at the point it gives the ball away because there's no support around him and we're not looking you know Guardiola doesn't tend to want us to hoof the ball upfield so he's, he's stuck going back and then yes he misplaces the back pass which is obviously that's that is on him but it always results from uh, the players around him not doing the right thing so I fully expect him to be back in, in defence wouldn't be surprised to see Sanya uh, in for Zabaleta at right back, particularly as Zabaleta went off injured today and left the game uh, with his uh, leg in a leg brace. Um, so he'll probably not play on Boxing Day. Uh, but for so, so many reasons, uh, I am very hopeful uh, and very optimistic for a City win. Yeah, and uh, lastly, I think it's like three days after Boxing Day, um, we're going to be playing away at Southampton, which I really like the story of Southampton, but the fact that they still get their ire up every time we go there because of Mauricio Pochettino I, is still very frustrating for me. Um, but uh, would have said before uh, their match today that, uh, you know, heading to face Southampton, who have an attack that's been struggling and now are without Charlie Austin, you know, this should be a, a fairly easy win for us. But then J-Rod, J-Rodriguez, shows up out of nowhere with two goals again just to remind everyone why anyone cared about him two or three years ago um, before he had all those injuries. Uh, another thing where, you know, I would like to think that's a cool story for Southampton, but they just insist on there being vitriol between our two clubs. Um, but we should, be, we should be fine in this one, although, you know, I, I said for the last two weeks I think we're going to start seeing rotation, uh, but we haven't. Obviously, this week there's going to be a lot of rest 
uh, before that match. Maybe we'll see rotation afterwards, but then we have the big match against Chelsea again, which it feels like we always play them right around New Year's as well. But uh, I think we should be okay against Southampton. Their defense is very good, um, and our attack has not been great. Uh, and conversely, our defense is great, and their attack hasn't been very good either. So it'll probably be a close one. I do think we'll be able to pull it out depending on how much rotation we get. But if we play a full-strength 11, which in theory we will because everybody will have a lot of days rest. Uh, I know Toby Alderweireld uh, was held out today with a slight back injury that he picked up in training, but apparently it's it's uh, very little, um, not, not a very meaningful injury. Uh, we, we should be able to win this one. I'm, but, uh, you know, they might score. I'm going to say that we win the, uh, 2-1 again. Uh, the, a very 2015-16 scoreline from Tottenham. All right, and that'll do it for us. So if you'd like to tell the folks where they could find you or any projects you're working on, now would be a good time. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, on the Blue Moon podcast, which is released every Friday, a specialist Manchester City podcast, and I write two articles a week for Yahoo Sport UK about City. Uh, I can be found on Twitter at Richard the Burns, uh, and the podcast is also on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Yes, if you want to hear more Swansea-based misery, you can find me on the Jackcast, uh, which you can find on Twitter at the Jackcast. We should have a pod going up sometime this week discussing the Middlesbrough match. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroth. Uh, for the show, you can always tweet us at EPL Roundtable or email us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Uh, you can also read my fantasy articles that go up over at TheEaglesBeak.com. And what else? Oh, also we do a DFS video, me and Rob Langevin uh, do for VIPBet.com, so be sure to check them out. And this show also goes out on allinsportstalk.com, at allinsportstalk. And uh, you can get the All in Sports Talk app in the Google Play Store or in the Apple App Store. All right, thanks so much for joining us, guys. It's been a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.